0: And then most recently, you know, my mom taught me how to die. You know, I've always been fascinated with how we deal with death in uh, in this country. Um, and and her death really did teach me a lot. It was a very formative part of uh, my last year. I mean, any death, especially of someone that you love, is a tragedy, right? There's uh, And there's predictable tragedies in your life. Like most of us are going to have to say goodbye to our parents, right? Uh, Fingers crossed, not many of us will have to say goodbye to our children, although it it does happen. Um, And I think that it being tragic and you feeling emptiness and sadness is just really part of that human condition. It's part of life and it's part of the maturing aspect of life. You know, um, I was never really an adult until I had kids. That's how I feel of it, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, because kids have taught me so much. And your brain changes when you have kids, right? There's, you know, you're no longer the center of the universe. eventually mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your brain changes also when you lose people that are close to you. And, and diff- different ways for different people. You know, I think my mom's death is made to be kinder. Maybe a little less ambitious, but definitely, kinder. I think a lot about how to treat people better. So that's a blessing. Now, um, in terms of what happened, I mean, I think it's a story that's worth sharing. I mean, not that it's easy to share, but uh, you know, maybe therapeutic. Who knows? You know, so so my mom was very healthy. Uh, she was, you know, an extremely vigorous seventy-four-year-old. Uh, and she actually uh, did not first get sick with COVID. She got sick uh, with a hip fracture. She was walking with my dad and turned and fell and broke her broke her hip. Uh, and she had a rather unremarkable surgery, uh, was sent to a rehab facility. And it was actually at the rehab facility that she got COVID. So just part of kind of just thought, that was the first tragedy, that she broke her hip. The second was that she got COVID because, you know, In medicine, sometimes we don't do the best about screening people or, you know, making sure that people, you know, aren't working when they're sick. I mean, universities do a better job in screening people who have COVID and the NBA and all these other places. Screen patients regularly for COVID. And in medicine, we've decided it's probably a little better that we just put our heads in the sand. Mm. And you've had this experience, right? Yes. You've never been tested for COVID once while working as an ER doctor, nor have I. Um, So my mom got COVID at the rehab. And, uh. At first, did really well. Um, looked like she was doing good. And uh, I was actually going to fly home to take care of her and uh, help her with some of her rehab because her time in inpatient rehab was ending when she became profoundly hypoxic. And we've all seen this with COVID too. People her around for a week or two and then boom, they just friggin' fall off a cliff. And uh, that was definitely the case with her. Um, and my mom was pretty critically ill for around a month, back and forth. Um, to, you know, first the, in the hospital, then in the ICU. Uh, and I, I went out to visit her for around a week the first time she was in the ICU. And I'd say that the biggest privilege that I've had is the fact that I was able to see her. Because mm. we know so many families are robbed of that opportunity yeah. to spend time with the, the people that they love because of COVID. And uh, because of my stature as a physician, I was allowed access and had to PPE gown and everything every time I saw her. Uh, but was able to spend a lot of time with her. And man, she was strong. Uh, she she wore BiPAP on her face for I think like nine straight days, ten straight days. Had, uh, you know, everything that happens when that happens. Skin breakdown on your face, et cetera. But she would never complain, you know. Uh, and then we weaned her at one point to high-flow nasal cannula. Uh, and she was actually able to talk with me for a little bit. And we had some great conversations, but I asked her once, "Do you think you're going to die?" And she said, "Yes," you know. And that was, I think, one of my first. My first, uh, you know, when she was on bipap, I asked her that, uh, and you know, she said she nodded to me, yes, and that was one of my first indications. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, she looked like she was going to survive. She had been to a heated high flow. We we're working on titrating that down. And uh, I left my mom's hospital to go back and spend dinner with my dad, and then I got one of those calls, you know, probably an hour afterwards, that my mom's heated high-flow nasal cannula had become dislodged or was taken off, who knows. And, uh, and you know, after after that, that she had had a respiratory arrest and could have been intubated. Uh, so I, I went back to the hospital to an intubated mother, wondering if she was, you know, how she was going to do, and and I asked to see the rhythm strip, and uh, you know, because I know what that is, and the pulse ox, and uh, the saddest part of that was my mother had removed her oxygen and it had become hypoxic probably two minutes afterwards, but it had not been recognized, and I coded up and called for around thirty minutes, and I think about that a lot. What that time must have felt like. I was pretty angry. I think I was rightfully angry sometimes. But that in an ICU that someone can be hypoxic for that long and be allowed to die was a bit of an abomination. And I think, I think that taught me a lot about anger and about resentment. And about how toxic that is. That night, I remember just laying in bed and being like, I'm, you know, just going to sue the fuck out of that. And I'm going to try to get everyone's license. And, you know, the fact that my mom was allowed to die for 30 minutes before I was recognized. And I realized that that's not helpful. It's not the way that I would want to be treated if I made a significant mistake. And I don't think that's what my mom would have wanted. She would not have wanted revenge. My mom, and I know this, ultimately cared deeply and was very thankful for the people who cared for her. The people who made a mistake. An honest mistake. So I learned a lot. A lot about Mercy and grace and forgiveness and how important, how important those things are. You know, ultimately, so that was a tragedy. My mom survived, uh, you know, on an ET tube for probably another 10 days. I flew back home. But I kept in touch with her doctors and, uh, you know, I would always ask them. They'd give me all these reports and this is one of the big cardinal sins about medicine, right, is we want to talk medicine. and At least I'm a doctor. I can talk medicine. I really didn't give a shit what my mom's granny was or what her presses were or whatever. You know, I cared about the the things that meant something to my family and meant something to my father. Is my mom going to survive? Is my mom brain dead? What does her future look like? And, you know, I talked with all these doctors who were, oh, it's I don't know, I don't know. And then I talked to the doctor who said, you know, I really don't think this is going to go well. And I said, well, if it's not going to go well, I know exactly what my mom wanted. She didn't want to be hooked up to a machine. So I flew home and, uh, and got off a plane with my brother, who was thankfully in town from Singapore. And I went to my mom's. You know, to the hospital the same night I flew in. And uh, I talked with the doc and I sat by my mother. We weaned all her sedation and I terminally extubated her. You know, not the respiratory therapist. It was, you know, I thought it was important. She gave me life. And on the other end of that, I wanted to give her a good death. So we terminally extubated her. And, you know, surprisingly, she did great on nasal cannula for a while. She, uh, you know, we had a good conversation. She, could, she was too hoarse, but she knew why I was there. And she knew why I was there. She knew that it was time. And we spent a good few hours together. Wow. Now, at the end of it, I think that she became a little too hypercarbic to, uh, to mentate well. But she was still satting well. And uh, I knew, like, you know, she, we'd, we'd given her a few doses of stuff for anxiety and for, for air hunger. Uh, but it was really hard to take off that high-headed high-flow. You know, and I was with my mom. Like, we are the only two human beings in that room for hours. Uh, but I still needed to call someone to say, is this okay to do? You know, and I'll be forever in debt. You know, Dr. Warner was the one who helped uh, really kind of ferry me and my family through a lot of that. And I'll forever be in debt to her because she's the one who reassured me. She said, it's okay. So I moved her, heated high flow, and I held her. And she died in my arms, which was a blessing. A good blessing. So yeah, that's how it happened. And I appreciate the opportunity to share it. And if someone gets them good for it, then it's it's worth it.
1: I know there will be. There's a country that's got families and loved ones of over five hundred thousand people mm-hmm. who have that's, similar stories. You
0: know, and that's the biggest tragedy, right? It's uh it's the fact that people didn't get to say goodbye. Mm. The fact that so many people died alone. And I think about that oftentimes. You know, one of the things this has made me better at is calling families. <laughs> you know, I think all of us have felt that inconvenience, right? You're just trying to get through and practice medicine, and you know, do all of those things, but the importance of actually reaching out and calling a family member—that's that's a lot. That's a lot more significant than it was before. Because uh, I've now been on the other line where I know what it's like to feel like an inconvenience. Mm. An inconvenience to get an update. An inconvenience to, you know, talk with the nurse or with the doctor, who I know is just busy as hell. But but at the end of the time, at the end of the line, that family member is worried. They're suffering. You know, they they want to be there even though they can't, and and COVID's robbed a lot of people of that, and it's a great tragedy.
1: Thank you, Don. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Are we going to end in something happier? You know, one thing, you, you, we originally started down this track because it, it was about end-of-life care. And, uh, and I do still feel like we do that so terribly in medicine. And some of it, you know, I went through with my mom is that we're not willing to have honest conversations uh, with patients whose family members are dying. And there's a concept in Buddhism about what's called idiot compassion. And I see it as a mistake that's being made oftentimes in terms of pain control, in terms of um, of end-of-life care, right? Where it's easier to tell people a nice lie because you don't want them to suffer than it is to tell them the truth. And that concept of idiot compassion means that you're actually prolonging and worsening their suffering when you don't have the, I'm not sure the right term, backbone, when you don't have the honesty to tell people the truth. That's a tremendous disservice. And I've seen it happen time and time again, right? Where there's someone who has a subarachnoid hemorrhage that they've got hydrocephalus and you know the surgeon looks at it and they say, well, wow, this person's dead. And, and then what you do is you offer them surgery. To what ends, right? Uh, Or the person who we all know is more bound and, you know, we still do things to that person. And, you know, that comes at a tremendous cost, not only to our medical system, but I think it comes at a tremendous human cost because so often when a person's in an OR or an ICU or something else, they're not with their family. They're alone. Yep. Yep. And and really, to me... um, we have to make death much more human again. We have to let people know the options, but also know, hey, this is your family member. Your family member is going to die. And the trade-off between a Hail Mary and uh, and allowing them a natural death might be the fact that you don't get to spend any time with them. Mm. And to refocus people, because I think, you know, it's always funny. People want to play doctor when it comes to end-of-life care for their family. They don't know what a creatinine is. They don't know what a pressor is. They don't know all the medicines we're doing. But suddenly, there's this deep interest in googling all this shit <laughs> and saying, "Well, I, what if we do this? And what if we do that?" And and really, you just have to refocus. And I tried to do this with myself all the time when I was with my mom in her final days. Is I said to myself, "I'm I'm here to be my mom's son." Do I have a good amount of medical knowledge? Yes, but. Am I going to question the vasopressors we're using or question this management? A little bit. I did a little bit. But really my my principal purpose was there to be her son. And that's really, I think, one of the things we can tell family members too is, you know, I'd, I'm i happy to be your loved one's doctor. That's I went through a fuckload of school to do that, in fact, <laughs> right? And have a good amount of experience doing that. But what I need you to be is I need you to be the husband, the son, the daughter, the family member that your mom would want in a time like this, right? Or your family would want in a time like this. And I want to tell you how important it is for you, for your soul, for your well-being to be at that bedside and to tell your loved one how much they mean to you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: To tell them sorry for anything that you've done wrong. To tell them thank you. And to tell them I love you. Right? You only get one shot to tell someone that on the way out sometimes. And we rob a lot of people of that this is a shot. You know? So it's made me a lot more human about death. I, I was already kind of fascinated with this stuff and, and passionate about it because I thought that we fucked up the human component of dying a lot. Uh but it's redoubled those efforts, you know? Giving people good deaths, a death like my mom had, um, should be one of the Biggest goals of medicine, not the full hearted goal that everyone's going to live forever. (laughs) We've succeeded in making no one live forever, Uh, but we sure as hell can succeed in making people's quality of life as good as it can be for as long as it can be. But then when the time is when the time has come to give people human deaths,
1: there's no more important calling. I couldn't agree with you more. If time were short, what would your family member want to be doing, and mm-hmm. what would what would you want to be doing with your family member?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And time is short, mm-hmm. and I
0: mean, that's a lot harder to do than to say, "Well, they're going to surgery," or yeah. "Well, we started them on this vasopressor and they're going to the ICU." Um, it's that's safer. It's that's, safer
1: for us. It's it's more I don't know. comfortable.
0: It's I don't know if it is safer for us, right? I would have been less angry if they would have told me we made a mistake, Mm. right? Initially. I mean, I'm no longer angry. If they said, listen, your mom's been hypoxic for a while. We don't know what happened, but the alarm was not heard or not listened to. And we've made a mistake. I would have been less, I would have been less angry. Right? Um, So, so I do think that, you know, I, I guess it gets back to the, the, the concept of being honest with people, right? Um, I think oftentimes we try to soften blows that are devastating. The death of someone is a devastating thing. There's no softening that, Mm. right? You can give the news in a compassionate way and then refocus on what's going to be less traumatizing for that patient and that person as they move forward in life. Not giving them a bunch of idiot compassion and, Hoping that things turn out for the best. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about, you know, things that are important. We don't have enough important conversations Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, so it's so it's good to have one every once in a while. Again,
1: The, the privilege is mine, and the privilege is our listeners for the chance to share in that, share in your vulnerability. You know, it's raw. And despite the the efforts that you clearly have taken to process it and to deal with it and but it's raw and it's pain and it's such a tragedy and it's mm. vulnerable, but it's a beautiful story. Oh yeah. It's a beautiful story with a beautiful ending and one that I'm privileged to hear. Yeah. And
0: and it's got good lessons, you yeah. know. Good lessons for me as a physician, for me as a human being. You know? It's uh it's it's a tragedy, no question. But it's a tragedy that that's made me a better person.
1: You said you wanted to end on something brighter, and then, there it is. There it yeah. is, right there.
0: Yep, good, good, good allegory for this year, right? Yeah, it's this last year, this epidemic um, is a tragedy. But hopefully, it makes us better people, a better nation, um, better caregivers, better doctors, and you know, healthcare workers. I really hope it does.